2020 was a challenging and tragic year as the world faced its largest pandemic in nearly a century. While doctors and healthcare workers continue to battle COVID-19 on the front lines, scientists have also been battling the virus, studying it, understanding how it infiltrates our cells, and developing drugs to combat infection. This week on the Pine Size Science Podcast, we wanted to better understand the science behind viral infection and what we've learned about COVID-19 and fighting it in the last year. I'm Hope Marins, a biology graduate student at Harvard Medical School. I had the opportunity to sit down with a scientist at the forefront of virus research, Dr. Sarah Cherry, Professor of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Together, we discussed her lab's research on virus-host interactions, COVID-19, and antiviral therapies against COVID-19 and other infectious diseases. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Cherry, for, for talking and meeting with me today. Uh, I guess I'll start very, very broadly with, um, you know, we know that viruses in, infect us and get us sick, but why, why do viruses infect us? Like, what is their goal? Like, why spend the time infecting us and trying to get into our body? Well, while viruses are not considered alive, you can think of them as alive for the purposes of this kind of thought process. So, Basically, all organisms want to make more of themselves, and so viruses also sort of fit that bill of wanting to make more of themselves. And to do that, because they are parasites, they have to infect a host. And so we're concerned about the ones that infect us as the host for many viruses. And so, you know, you say kind of they need to have this host in order to to replicate and, and, and keep living in their sense of living. Um, and so what does that what does that look like? Why are they using why do they need us in order to to replicate? Right. So, you know, viruses are one of many different kinds of pathogens. Right. So the bad things that infect us. So there is, you know, uh, bacteria and fungi and viruses are the three main groups. So while fungi and bacteria are, uh, live on their own, they have all the machinery and the genetic information to grow on their own. Some of them also take advantage of us and can make us sick, but they have all the genetic information to make more of themselves by themselves. There are some examples that that's not true for, but in general, that's the case. So, but viruses are parasites, so they've lost or they don't, don't have all the machinery that they need to make more of themselves, so they have to find a suitable host where they can get inside of and then hijack all the machinery inside of the cell in order to grow. So an example of that is like the machinery that makes proteins, right? So all organisms need proteins, but viruses don't carry the machinery to do that, which we call ribosomes. So they have to get into a, a host cell that has these ribosomes so they can make more proteins. And so they have to hijack many different machines within our cells in order to make more of themselves. So they have very little coding capacity, so they don't make very many of their own things. Rather, they're very stealthy and smart, and they're able to hijack all the things that we already have in place for them to grow more. Yeah, and it's interesting you say they kind of like hijack these these ribosomes, these protein-building factories in our cells uh, that they themselves lack. 
And, you know, when you say hijack and kind of stealthy, it, you know, it kind of gives this the sense that, you know, obviously our own cells wouldn't want it being hijacked by, you know, by some parasite. And so how are they, you know, how are they hijacking? How come our cells don't immediately say, well, you're not, you're not the correct thing or, you know, you're a virus, like get get out of here. Um, how, what, what do they use to kind of hijack and trick ourselves into being able to use our ribosomes? Right. So there's a sort of a couple of different levels of, of response to that. So one thing is that, you know, all organisms, right, have to recognize a foreign invader. So that includes, again, back to these fungi and bacteria and viruses. And so in order to recognize these invaders, they have a, a series of, of machines and a series of proteins that, that basically are looking for something different than self. It's called like non-self recognition. And so the, many of these things uh, look for patterns on, uh, on foreign entities that don't resemble self to then initiate um, antiviral or antimicrobial pathways to block infection. So this is true for all the different kinds of pathogens, but for viruses in particular, because they use our own host cells to make their proteins, for example, it's very difficult to distinguish the viral proteins from host proteins because they're made by the same machinery. And so most viruses are thought to be recognized by their nucleic acid, by their RNA or their DNA, because in order to, to make more of themselves, they have to compact a lot of information in a very small piece of RNA or DNA. And so they tend to have structural features and differences from our own RNA and DNA. And so much of the recognition and responses surround the viral RNA or DNA. That makes a lot of sense that if, yeah, if they're using our machinery to make proteins, those are going to kind of blend in and look a lot more like, like our own proteins in our bodies. I guess when, you know, especially recently in the news, we've been hearing a lot about rapid variant evolution. Um, is that connected to this idea that, um, you know, viruses are, are being detected based on their, their DNA, RNA content. And so, um, you know, evolving, does that then help them try to, you know, is it kind of a game of cat and mouse? Are they trying to then escape detection and cells are trying to go back and detect them? Is that why we hear that viruses evolve so quickly? So again, that there's a lot of different levels to that. So one thing is that, so this current pandemic is an RNA virus, it's a coronavirus. And RNA viruses don't have any DNA in their life cycle, so they just use RNA. And most RNA viruses um, are smaller than coronavirus, actually. And so they don't even bother to have anything called proofreading. So they have very, very error-prone growth. So because of that, there's in a cell that's infected, there's Big, a big number of like a swarm. There's many different what we call quasi-species that, so for example, for many small RNA viruses like dengue, right, West Nile, Zika virus, the viruses that emerged actually not that long ago, those viruses, um, every single genome, every single copy has one mutation in it. So basically they, they cover a lot of genetic space, making it very easy for them to avoid, for example, drugs or other challenges that go their way. Actually, an interesting thing about coronaviruses is that they're much bigger. So they're three times bigger than these other RNA viruses. And in order to, to make that work, they actually have um, what's called proofreading ability. They actually have an enzyme that corrects some of the mutations. 
So in fact, there's sort of less different mutants in some ways than other RNA viruses, but still many, many, because the proofreading capacity isn't, isn't perfect. And so within all of us who get infected, there's many, many different variants. And so the question then becomes, well, what variant spread, right? And just because it's a variant doesn't mean it's better or worse or anything. It's just because when it makes a mistake, if, if that mistake is neutral, for example, has no negative or positive, it could just accidentally be the one that then gets spread to the next person, right? So just because the variant is there doesn't mean it, it's good or bad. And so because there's been so many people infected by this virus, that's allowed many different variants to spread. And so a real question is, if you see a variant become more prevalent, right, is that for a reason? And what would that reason be? Is that reason because it spreads better? Is it reason just because of a jackpot effect that just seems like more people have it? Is it because it was selected for some reason? So for example, because someone was just sort of immune to it and so it was trying to you know, evade those antibodies, right? So there's lots of different possibilities of why variants arise. But yes, variants will arise even if there's no selection just because there's differences in, in, the, in, in the mutations and you know, they could have no effect on anything but still arise in populations. Well, that's great, thank you for kind of fleshing out kind of what that means in terms of looking at these variants, how they, how they can arise and how maybe that's neutral and maybe that gives them some benefit. Um, in addition, you also mentioned how much larger uh, the coronavirus uh, is than other um, are like small uh, RNA viruses that we, we've seen. Um, within the coronavirus family, uh, I guess we can, we can kind of switch to talking a little bit more specifically about COVID-19. Is it, uh, are there anything that makes it distinct or, or um, very different from other coronaviruses? What kind of makes it stand out and does that give us any insight into why it's caused a full pandemic? Yeah, so so coronaviruses are actually a really large family of viruses. And, and in, from a human perspective, we group them into these sort of two classes. There is what's called the low pathogenic coronaviruses and the high pathogenic coronaviruses. So we've, we coexist with these low pathogenic coronaviruses all the time, like OC43, NL63. They infect us common cold viruses, right? No problem. And then in the last, you know, 10 or 12 years, we've had a number of what are these considered high pathogenic viruses sort of emerge in human populations, right? First SARS-1 and then MERS and now SARS-2, right? And so, you know, SARS-2 is very, is very similar in its genetic sequence to SARS-1, which also caused, you know, major respiratory infections. But the, the, the big difference between SARS-1 and SARS-2 is how transmissible the virus is, right? So in order to really start a pandemic, what a virus really needs is to be able to be very highly transmissible, and in particular, transmissible in people who aren't that sick, right? So the reason this virus was able to move through the world so quickly is because we had no idea that asymptomatic or low symptomatic people were spreading it, right? So we were able to squash SARS-1 because the only people who could transmit were the people who were very, very sick. And so we could easily quarantine and, and separate those people. But this virus is able to, you know, to be very transmissible in, in even non-symptomatic people which really is what has cha what changed the globe, right? 
And, I, and no, it's not predictable. That's the, that's the problem with viruses is you can't look at the sequence and predict that. So even now, you know, I, and we're still studying, you know, COVID-19, you know, we've really only had a year of studying it, even though it seems like we've learned so much. Do we understand better why some people are so asymptomatic and other people show symptoms? Like what, you know, maybe on the, this level of, you know, hijacking cells really has, has allowed this virus to be so sneaky. Yeah. So, you know, we are trying to understand that because that's really like where where the major issue is. Right. So if all of us were asymptomatic or had like like similar to the common cold type coronavirus, we wouldn't be talking about this. Right. So the reason we're talking about it is that there is a significant number of people largely who have comorbidities or who are older who can be very, very sick or die. Right. And so the, the, the real question is why. Right. And so we are studying the immune systems and the responses of the diversity of people who get the disease. And we're beginning to find correlates of uh, immune protection and more, and more likely to, to have these um, terrible outcomes. But I would say we still don't understand really the bottom line question of why. But the other thing that, you know, unfortunately there's been so many infections, but the other thing the fact that so many people have been infected, it's allowed us to uncover genetic susceptibilities, actually. So, you know, there are subsets of people who get really, really sick that actually, like, for example, are in families. And so by sequencing the DNA of those people, we have found that people with certain um, genetic changes are more likely to get really infected and and have really uh, poor outcomes. So the question is, you know, so those people have, you know, very bad mutations, so to speak, in those genes. But are there more common mutations in, in the population that account for some of these, these differences in susceptibility? So this is what's, you know, being studied right now. So we're learning a lot about sort of how humans respond to infection. And I think because this pandemic has been so devastating, we're really going to learn a lot about viral infections in general from understanding how different people respond to the, to the infection but back to your original question, I think we still don't really understand why certain people with certain comorbidities are more likely to have poor outcomes and really what drives those poor outcomes, right? So it doesn't look like it's um, local infections per se. It's some corollary of what happens in their lungs that secrete certain molecules that then have other effects in other organ systems. And part of the difficulty in understanding sort of how the infection of the lung leads to those other outcomes has been challenging is because the small animal models don't recapitulate that second part at this point. So we're still developing the small animal models, but right now the animal models do a really good job of modeling what happens in your lungs during the acute phases of the infection, but they're less clear at being able to model these uh, more complicated outcomes uh, and so it makes it more difficult to understand what's really happening because then you're just observing humans and trying to then figure out caus- causality, which is challenging. It's interesting the way you, you kind of discuss, you know, we think a lot about learning about the virus and studying the virus. But uh, I think what you kind of really highlight in your answer there is that when we're studying virus infection, it's studying the virus, but also studying the host. And what about, you know, us as a host, as humans or our genetic makeup kind of can influence um, you know, our, uh, 
our ability to get sick or to fight off a virus. Is this kind of, I guess, like it seems like a philosophy maybe you have towards your, your work that there's really this two-sided issue and two-sided genetic problem, not just one. Yeah, so my lab has really historically been very interested in understanding the host side of this of this process, sort of how do viruses, again, you know, subvert pathways within cells? How does the host make effector mechanisms and other engage other pathways to try to block infection and and sort of how can we boost one you know how do we boost immune responses and how do we suppress their ability to hijack cellular uh, factors and so that's really been our main interest um, in my lab. And another interest you had, we were discussing a little bit before we started recording today, is you said your your lab's also studying antiviral therapies. And so I was really interested in talking to you about that. A lot of people, I think, are, are more familiar right now with the idea of, you know, vaccines or, you know, RNA vaccines. So maybe could we break down kind of the, you know, the big difference when you say antiviral therapy versus some type of vaccine? Right. So, of course, vaccines are the best thing we can have, right? So the best possible scenario is that you get a vaccine and you're never, you never, it's, and it's sterilizing immunity. So that way you never get infected again with that virus. And so we have some, some uh, vaccines that work that way, right? That are incredibly uh, powerful in inducing complete immunity. And then there are other vaccines that can mitigate poor outcomes, right? So for example, some of the vaccine platforms that are out there, they say that they're 95% effective in preventing hospitalizations, right? That doesn't mean that the, the person the person may, ha- may be infected. We still don't fully understand if people can still transmit if they've been vaccinated, but we know that they don't end up in the hospital. And that in this particular virus is really the key. And then there are other vaccines, right? Which we all know about like the flu vaccine where we're, move, we're chasing a moving target, right? So every year, different variants of flu emerge. And so every year we try to get vaccinated against the variants that are about to emerge, right? And so some years we do better than others in predicting that. But we still, but people still get infected by the flu and the flu vaccines are, have uh, varying um, efficacy depending on the population. So in general, older individuals uh, are less protected, actually, from the flu vaccine, but many vaccines, actually, right? And so with this particular pandemic, right, so we have a, a number of platforms that are emerging, and, and they're, they're excellent, but there are still outstanding questions about what that all means, right? So one question is how, how active or protective are they against variants, current variants, future variants, right? So is this going to be like the flu, the flu scenario where we're gonna constantly have to update the vaccine, right? So that's an outstanding question. Um, And then in terms of uh, therapeutics, I think we really need therapeutics more now than ever. So that's drugs that you take either prophylactically, so before, but you think you might be getting infected, or that you take when you're exposed. So for example, if a family member was infected, Maybe you'd want to take it to protect your family. Maybe your family members would want to take it so they would be less likely to get infected, right? And then, of course, we want to, if people start to see symptoms, right, you'd want to take a, a, a drug to, to prevent you from progressing. So not everyone can be vaccinated. There's groups of people who can't be vaccinated. 
Again, the vaccine is not effective in everyone. And again, we have these emerging variants. So all of these things together suggest that we really need a second line to be able to protect individuals from, from having uh, poor outcomes. And so my lab is trying to find drugs that block viral infections uh, in order to try to move things forward in, on that side. So then how are these antiviral therapies working uh, to help us fight off an infection? Right, so, so as, as we talked about earlier, right, so the viruses go into host cells and have to steal all these machines in order to make more of themselves. But they also carry some of their own enzymes and some of their own proteins, and these proteins help them to grow within cells too. So one example is that all viruses carry, their, carry at least to some extent their own enzymes that make more of their nucleic acid. So all RNA viruses, including SARS-CoV-2, carries what's called an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. So it's the enzyme that synthesizes more RNA that's absolutely required for the virus to make more of itself. So many of the approved antivirals in general are what's called nucleoside analogs. So those mimic the, one of the bases of RNA, and then they get incorporated by that enzyme, and then they can affect the, the making of more of that RNA by different mechanisms. So in fact, right now, the only approved antiviral therapeutic against SARS-CoV-2 is a, is a drug called remdesivir, which is a nucleoside analog. It's a mimic of an A, and so it gets incorporated by that polymerase and then end, end, ends up causing what's called delayed end, uh, chain termination. So it ends up basically making the RNA end, and so it doesn't make enough of itself, and so it, it, it stops it from growing. So kind of to, to synthesize a bit of what you're saying, so we have this infection. The virus wants to make more and more and more RNA to then hijack our protein factories we talked about earlier. Those are the human ones, our ribosomes. And then, you know, like you said, downstream now we have these proteins that could be, you know, could be viral, could be human. They look very similar. So what we want to do is, is use these antiviral therapies to stop at that point of making a bunch of RNA so you can't even get to the human machines. That's the point where we want to kind of stop it in its tracks. And, and, the, and these are the largest group of antivirals. So the antivirals that we use for many, many different viruses are these nucleoside analogs, and that includes, you know, HIV, hepatitis C virus, right? So it's a very um, well-studied group of antivirals because all these viruses need to make more of their nucleic, and you block that, you block viral infection, right? That's really interesting. Was your lab kind of, you know, working on these antiviral therapies before COVID, or has your lab kind of shifted um, any of its approaches um, you know, now that we have this pandemic, or is it kind of adapting, you know, work you're already doing and therapies you're already working on to this new threat? Yeah, so my lab um, had, not, had not studied coronaviruses before. We had, we've been studying a lot of other emerging viruses, like I mentioned, like, you know, dengue and West Nile and Zika. And we were using what's called high-throughput screening to find antiviral uh, drugs and to understand what genes are important for viral infection for a long time. And so what we were able to do is when the pandemic started, is we, we obtained the virus from the CDC and we were able to basically adapt all of our technology and pipelines that we've been using to study 
these other emerging viruses and apply them to SARS-CoV-2. So we basically had everything in place except for the virus. And so that allowed us to very rapidly um, screen for, to use this high throughput screening to find small molecules or drugs that could act to block this viral infection. And I guess kind of uh, going off that idea that you've had these systems in place and you've been studying these emerging viruses for years, you know, I guess one kind of final larger question I have for you is when we think about COVID, it's, you know, definitely not our last emerging virus, but what kind of tools and, and scientific information do you think we need as a scientist, as a society going forward to kind of uh, try to prevent pandemics like this in the future? Yeah, so that's, you know, that's the real question is, is how do we mitigate something like this from ever happening again? So in terms of coronaviruses, I think what we're doing is trying not only to find antivirals that work against this coronavirus, but ones that work against other coronaviruses to potentially find a drug that would be pan-anti-coronavirus. So if another coronavirus emerged, we would have something in place. Um, And I think that the fact that we were able to move so many vaccine platforms from, you know, from the day that they got the sequences to the, you know, the day that things were approved in humans was less than a year, right? So we now can move so much faster than we were able to move before. So that way, if another virus emerges, I think that we're going to basically have vaccine candidates even faster. So I think the combination of trying to find antivirals against groups of pathogens, groups of viruses, and the idea about being able to very rapidly move these platforms means that we're in such a better position if this ends up happening in the future. I think that's a very like hopeful and, and nice silver lining to hear of, you know, at least we'll be prepared for the future, you know, and maybe for other emerging viruses as well. It will be, um, we'll have learned knowledge, at least from this experience. Thank you so much for, for talking today about your research and, you know, I, giving so much insight to this topic that m- now more than ever has been so important worldwide.